Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Hey, welcome to Alpine Church. If it's your first time, we're so excited that you're here. Uh, we hope that you feel very welcome today. We hope that we're able to help you pursue God today. My name's John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor here at Alpine Logan. And if you're newer to Alpine, one of the things that's a little different about us is we're a multi-site church. So we have six campuses of Alpine, six English-speaking campuses throughout northern Utah, and two Spanish-speaking campuses, one that meets here and one that meets at our Riverdale campus. And one of the other things that's a little different about us is we normally use a team approach to teaching. We don't have the same person give the sermon every week at each campus. So even though I'm the lead pastor here, I normally only teach in Logan about once a month. And the reason we do that is we want it to be more about the message than the messenger. So we're pretty intentional about that. So it's pretty rare for the same guy to give the message two weeks in a row at the same campus. But I switched with uh, Pastor Dean today. He had a scheduling conflict that came up, and so I'm here. So unfortunately, you're stuck with me two weeks in a row. But, but don't get used to it. It'll be someone new next week. So I am really excited to dig into God's Word with you today as we continue on in the pursuit. We're in week three of it. If you've been coming to Alpine for any length of time, you've heard us talk about the pursuit. The pursuit is a 12-lesson discipleship track. And that really, it's our hope that every person who calls Alpine their church home would go through it, and that each and every one of you would lead someone else through it. Because we truly believe that every believer is called to help someone else pursue God. Every one of us is called to be a disciple maker. We started this series out by sharing the truth that God is for you. That God wants a relationship with you. That's what we talked about in week one. And then last week, we gave logical evidence on why we can trust the Bible, why it's reliable, why it is a book unlike any other book that, in fact, it is God-breathed. And I had a lot of great conversations after the message last Sunday about that. And I also, during the week, have had several people text me and say, hey, I, I took you up on your challenge to keep researching and to keep investigating, and I've, I've uncovered some really cool stuff. And so... That has been awesome. So I just want to say again, if, if you're not sure yet if you can trust the Bible, keep digging. Keep asking those questions. Keep doing the research because you will find that it's trustworthy. So I want to start out today's sermon by asking a question. What is the most valuable thing that you own? Is it your home, your 401k, or your investments? Maybe you have an investment property. Maybe you're secretly sitting on a Pikachu Illustrator card, which would be worth $5.2 million. Now, if you're like me and you didn't know what that was, it's a Pokemon card. If you did know what that was, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> Maybe you believe the most valuable thing you have is your family, your health, your friendships. Whatever it is, how did you determine the value of it? And would other people say it's just as valuable as you think it is? What do you think God would say his most valuable creation is? It's you. It's us. That's pretty mind-blowing if you think about it. And if that's not mind-blowing, I've got a lot of really good videos about pride on PursueGod.org that you should check out. See, David wrestled with this in Psalm 8. David said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, O God, the sun, the moon, and the stars which you have ordained, 
What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would visit him? David looked around at all of the splendor of God's creation and thought, what in the world is it about me that you would be interested in me? I don't get it. I can relate to David, even just walking out in Cache Valley sometimes. I look at how beautiful this valley is that we live in, and I'm like, what would God see in me? But God says, you are the most valuable creation that he has. I think some of you need to hear that today because I think some of you have been told that you're worthless. Maybe you've had people throughout your life tell you that you're not worth anything, or maybe only one person said it, but you just can't seem to shake it. Maybe no person has ever said it to you, but the devil has whispered it in your ear over and over and over again that you're not worth anything. Well, I hope, no matter what voice you have heard that says that, the loudest voice you would hear would be God's voice, because God says you have immeasurable worth. Because you were created in his image. And that's what we're going to see today as we explore the meaning of Imago Dei. Imago Dei means in the image of God. See, humans are the only created beings as described in the image of God. We're the only thing that God created that he said that about. Not even the angels are described that way. So we're going to dig into what that means what it doesn't mean, and practically what does that look like for our day-to-day life. So the big idea for the sermon today is that the core ethic of biblical Christianity has shaped entire cultures and gives us an answer to the question of life's meaning. See, the majority of us have grown up in a culture that was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. Vicki, I'm just going to have you lead me through it, if you would, please. So we would all likely agree that there is inherent value in every human life. I think sometimes we assume that everybody feels that way, but that, act, that hasn't always been the case. Not every culture places value on every human life. See, why does our society assert that every person possesses certain unalienable rights just because they're a human being? Why do we care about child abuse, elderly abuse, Why do we care about sex trafficking or racism? We care because we know that the Bible teaches that every life has value. And because we grew up in a culture that was shaped by the Bible, sometimes I think we forget that not every culture is like that. In ancient Rome and ancient Greece, when an unwanted child was born, either because they just weren't planning to have a child or because it was deemed weak or because it had a birth defect, it was often just left out in the elements to die. Nobel-winning economist Amartya Sen estimates that in the course of the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s, over 100 million female babies were aborted in Asia, a big chunk of those in China during their one-child policy. Many other ancient cultures, including the Mayans, the Incas, the Aztecs, all practice human sacrifice. Or something that hits much closer to home for me, The nation of Iceland has boasted recently they virtually eliminated Down syndrome because every single mother just about whose screening shows their baby has Down syndrome aborts the baby. If I thought I could do it with a Christ-like attitude, I'd take my daughter Hannah on vacation there just to show them what they're missing. But I don't think I could pull that off. Why are we against those types of things? So remember last week I said we were going to let the Bible be our final authority 
It gets to have the final say. And the Bible teaches that humans are created in God's image. That's imago Dei. And therefore, they are worthy of dignity and respect. Now, we're going to start all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you or your Bible up on your phone, we're going to pick it up in verse 26. Here's what 126 says. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And there is a lot of stuff packed into verse 126. We could spend the whole rest of the sermon on it, but I won't. We'll move it, on. We'll move it along more quickly than that. But I want to point out a few things. First, God said, let us, plural, make human beings in our plural image. This is a reference to the triune nature of God. The us here is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is not talking to or about the angels. From the very beginning of Scripture, we see this picture of a Trinitarian God that we serve. In fact, the word used for God here is Elohim. You'll see Elohim used all throughout the book of Genesis in particular for the word God. Elohim is a very interesting word grammatically because it's a plural word, but it's used as singular. So the verbs and the pronouns that are used with Elohim should be plural, but anytime Elohim refers to the Lord God, they're always in the singular because God is triune in nature. And I can't fully get my head around that, but I'm glad that I can't because a God who's small enough for me to fully understand would not be much of a God at all. If we were to back up in the creation story, we'd see that we're the only creation that this is said about. So what does it mean that we're created in the image of God? Well, I want to start out by talking about what it does not mean. It does not mean that we look like God. The Bible clearly teaches that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are formless. They don't have a human body. Only God the Son, Jesus Christ, has a body. And he took that on when he became incarnate. So we don't look like God. It doesn't mean that we will one day be a God. God has always been God. God will always be God, and you never will be God. There is only one God. So what does it mean for us? I think there are several implications of being created in the image of God. We have a personality. We can communicate. We have feelings. We have a will. We have morality. See, we think about things in the context of right and wrong. We're the only creation that does that. You never see a lion feeling guilty for eating the youngest or oldest gazelle. They're just taking the easiest meal they can get. They're just running on instinct. The other lions don't come up and they're like, oh man, you killed the little one. We can't eat that, right? They don't do that. But we do that. We have laws in place to protect the most vulnerable children and the elderly, as we should because we're moral creations. Again, only humans have that. Another thing that we do that's in the image of God is we create just to create. Other creatures create, but there's always a motive behind it. It might be to build a shelter. It might be to attract a mate. It might be to attract prey. But humans create just for the sake of creating, just to enjoy it. Again, we're the only creation that does that. We possess spirituality. We're the only creature who wonders what is there besides what we can see. 
We're the only creation who looks to the heavens and wonder, is there a God? And if there is a God, how can I know Him? How can I relate to Him? We ask big questions about the purpose of life, right? Why is there suffering? What happens after we die? The other thing I see in 126 is you and I were created to reign. God gave us authority. Now, we don't have the same kind of authority He has. He is the ultimate authority. He should be our authority. But we were clearly called to co-reign with God on this beautiful planet that He gave us. We're supposed to have dominion over it. We're supposed to be good stewards of it and take care of it for His glory. So what are some of the ramifications of being made in the image of God? Well, Imago Dei is the basis for blessing all humanity, even those who stand against a biblical worldview. I want to read that again because i got to confess, I've wrestled with that this week. Imago Dei is the basis for blessing all of humanity, even those who stand against a biblical worldview. See, it's easy to slip into an us versus them mentality, isn't it? It's easy to kind of get in these holy huddles on a Sunday and look with disdain at the world around us. That's not how God has called us to live. God calls us to recognize that even someone who declares there is no God is still made in the image of God. And therefore, they have immeasurable worth and value. They deserve our dignity and respect. So this is the basis for how we look at all people, particularly in in our culture. Our founding fathers recognized that all humans have unalienable rights because they're created in the image of God. In fact, they put it right in the Declaration of Independence. Hopefully you guys have read this. But they wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, this isn't Scripture. And this shouldn't be elevated to the level of Scripture. I'm as patriotic as anyone you probably know, but we should not elevate this to the level of Scripture because it's not. However, there are multiple biblical principles behind this document. See, our our forefathers knew that all humans have certain unalienable rights because they were created in the image of Almighty God, Imago Dei. See, we don't get these rights from some benevolent government. We don't get these rights from social consensus. We get these rights because we're created in the image of God. If there was no God and we weren't created in His image, it would be silly to say that everyone has these unalienable rights. It would just be whoever has the power has the rights. That's how it is in every other culture. That's how it is in every other creation besides mankind. Only the powerful would have rights. So let's dig a little bit deeper into the biblical principles behind this document. So first we're going to talk about life. I want to take you to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. It says, if anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands, for God made human beings in his own image. It's because human beings are created in the image of God that life is precious, that all life is precious. That's why for 2,000 years, Christians have been against euthanasia. That's why Christians have never been for leaving an unwanted child out in the elements to die. It's why Christians should be against the practice of abortion. 
It's why Christians led the way for the abolition of slavery in England and America. It's why Christian organizations were the first to take water and food and medical supplies to third world countries because every life matters. Every life is sacred in God's eyes. What about liberty? Well, I'll again take you back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. It says, but the Lord God warned him, the him there is Adam. So the Lord God warned Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. See, God gave Adam free will. God allowed Adam to make a choice. Adam was not a robot. Now, God knew ahead of time what Adam would choose because God's omniscient, but Adam still made a choice. See, humans have the capacity to consider the consequences and then make decisions accordingly. Now, God gave Adam some boundaries and some consequences if he broke those boundaries, and he did. And we're still facing those consequences today, but Adam had a choice. Adam had free will. Lastly, let's talk about this pursuit of happiness. We see this in Philippians 4, verse 4. Paul says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Now, I'm not saying that God's desire for all of us is to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture promises us we will have trials in this world. But to fear not because He has overcome the world. But God does want us to be joyful. That's the beautiful thing about recognizing that we're created in the image of God is we can have joy even in the hard times. We can have joy because God has sought us out, because God cares about us, because He wants a relationship with us, because one day we're going to get to spend eternity with Him and it's all going to be joyful. (laughs) There's not going to be any more pain, any more crying. We're going to experience joy that we can't even imagine. Did you know that experiencing joy is part of being created in God's image because God experiences joy? The Bible says that God rejoices over us. That God and the heavens rejoice when even one person comes to salvation. I think that's amazing. Jesus was motivated by joy. The Bible tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy that he was going to experience in obeying God the Father all the way to the cross, and the joy he was going to experience redeeming the lost, Jesus endured the cross. There's another implication of being created in the image of God. See, Imago Dei gives us a definite purpose in life. To love God, to love others, and to love ourselves. Because we're created in God's image, because we're not just the culmination of billions and billions of years of chance and random processes, we were created for a purpose. God has a plan for each and every one of you. And when we embrace that truth and we begin to recognize the source of our value and what the God of all the universe thinks about us, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we look at things. It changes our relationships I would submit it changes three types of relationships. Our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and even our relationship that we have with ourselves. In Matthew 22, 37 through 39, Jesus said this. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 
And a second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. So in the context of this, a religious leader had asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus had plenty to choose from. There were a lot of Old Testament commandments he could have gone with. And he said, really, they boil down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So we see these three relationships right in that passage. Loving God, loving our neighbor, and loving ourselves. So we're going to start at the bottom and kind of work our way up. And let's talk first about loving ourselves. Luke chapter 12, verse 6 and 7 says the following. What is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are numbered, so don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Now this isn't a a narcissistic, the whole world revolves around me type of self-love. That's not what we're talking about. But this is a recognition that the God of the universe looks at you and he thinks that you're valuable that he created you in his image. It's really a, it's a fascinating paradox. Because on our own, we bring nothing of value to the table. But because of who created us, we're more valuable than we can imagine. So God's word says about you this morning. It's recognizing that the God of all the universe cares enough to know the very number of hairs on your head. That he wants to engage in a relationship with you on a personal, individual level. That he desires that you would know him. See, and it's important for us to recognize that because I firmly believe you can't really love others if you don't like yourself. If you think about the most hateful, honorary, just contentious people you know, I'll bet you almost every single one of them doesn't really like themselves. They're dealing with guilt, they're dealing with shame, they're dealing with frustration, they feel like they're not adequate, and they take it out on everybody around them. I see this happen in my own marriage. I'm always quicker to snap at my wife or say something stupid when I'm angry at myself. And just recently, we took a vacation to Disneyland. About two weeks ago, we took the kids down there, spent three days. And you guys know what it's like when you're trying to get ready to leave for vacation, right? Those two or three days before, you're running 90 miles an hour, you're trying to get stuff done. And then, like, we're idiots when we go to Disneyland. Like, we're that family that we're there at 8 a.m. when the park opens, and we don't leave until midnight. We did that three days in a row. Like, I'm 48. I don't do that anymore. Like, I barely made it. And then I drove all the way home. Everybody else is sleeping on the car right home. Not me. I'm like, you know, one more Red Bull. So we get home late on a Sunday afternoon, two Sundays ago. I had 42 emails, not junk emails, legit valid emails I had to try and get replied to. I had staff meetings the next morning. I had to prepare for those. And I had to start writing the sermon that I gave last Sunday. And I just felt overwhelmed and I felt frustrated with myself that I wasn't, I wasn't managing my time well. I just felt inadequate. About 8 o'clock that night, my wife said, hey, the washing machine is not filling up with water. <laughs> and that's all she said. She didn't ask me to fix it. She wasn't whining or complaining. She's just giving me information. And I snapped. And I said, well, at 4 a.m. this morning, when I'm done with everything else, I'll watch a YouTube video and I'll figure out how to fix it. I didn't have to respond like that. She hadn't done anything wrong, but I didn't like myself. I felt inadequate. I felt like I wasn't getting things done, and I snapped at her. And that's not the only time something like that has happened in my marriage. 
Now, I asked her to forgive me. We're good. We're, we're reconciled. I, I said, yep, I'm an idiot. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. We're all good. But there's a, a truth here, guys. If you don't love yourself, now, again, I'm talking about in a healthy, humble way, it's really tough to love those around you. So let's talk about loving others. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13, a passage I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Beginning in verse 4, it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It's always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. Again, you've probably heard that at Dozens of weddings over the years, I use that passage in every wedding that I officiate. This is how we're called, though, to not only love our spouse, but to love our neighbors. And who is our neighbor? Jesus was asked that one time. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And a religious leader who wanted to justify himself said, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded by telling the story of the Good Samaritan. And he said the Samaritan was the one who acted neighborly to the Jew who had been beaten and robbed. Now, if you know anything at all about that culture, Jews and Samaritans were enemies. They hated one another. So Jesus is essentially saying everyone is your neighbor. You're supposed to love everyone like this. I don't even love my wife that way most of the time. And God says, no, you love everyone that way. See, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to love like that. We can't can't do that on our own. That's how God loves. And because you and I are created in the image of God, we're supposed to love like God loves. And we ask His Holy Spirit to help us to do that because, again, we can't do it on our own. It's a supernatural kind of love. And it's the kind of love that we can do because we're His image bearers and the people we're supposed to be loving, guess what? They're His image bearers also. That leads us to the last relationship, which is loving God. Did you know we're the only part of God's creation that can love Him? We're the only creation that has the capacity to love God. See, you and I can actually reflect the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father when we love God. It's part of what we were created for. In fact, I would say it's the ultimate thing that you and I were created for. And there are several ways that our love for God can express itself. One is just to communicate with Him, just to spend time with God. One is to be loyal to Him. A critical way to show our love for God is to obey Him, to be obedient. 1 John 5.3 says it like this, Loving God means keeping His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. If you've read the Gospel of John and if you read John's letters, you know that John had a thing with obedience. He thought obedience was important, and maybe it's because Jesus thought obedience was important. John quotes Jesus in John chapter 14 where Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now we know this side of heaven, we're not going to keep them perfectly. We're going to fall short, we're going to stumble, we're going to be disobedient. But the mark of a Christian's life is that overall we should be seeking to obey the commandments of God because we love Him. Not because we're trying to earn His approval, but because we already have His approval through Jesus Christ, even though we don't deserve it. And when we obey God's commandments out of love, they're never burdensome. They're not burdensome. 
See, a God who loves you enough to do what Jesus did on the cross is a God who doesn't give pointless or harmful commandments. His commandments are because He loves you, because He wants the best for you. So they're not burdensome. See, an animal can be taught to obey, right? Some of you have pets at home that you've trained, and if you reward the good behavior and punish the bad behavior, you can get almost anything to be somewhat obedient. But humans are different and that God wants us to choose to obey Him. He wants us to obey Him because we love Him, not because He forced us to. And the beautiful thing about how much God values you is He doesn't just say He values you, He proved it. He demonstrated it. See, anytime I try to think about how much something is worth, I always go to, well, how much could I sell it for? (laughs) If I want to know how much my house is worth, well, what would somebody pay for it? If I want to know how much my truck is worth or, or one of my hunting rifles is worth, how much is it worth? Well, it's whatever I can sell it for. How much are you worth? How much did God pay for you? He gave everything when he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. See, even though we're created in the image of God, the Bible says that we don't have a right relationship with God because of sin. Sin is kind of a churchy word. We don't usually talk about it much outside of Sundays, but sin is any time we choose to go our own way, follow our own thoughts, our own opinions, our own feelings, instead of following the Word of God and His truth. And we've all done it, every single one of us. And the Bible says that the wages of that sin is death, that we deserve death because of that. But God thought you were too valuable to just leave you there. So He sent Jesus who lived the perfect life that none of us could live, and he went to the cross, and he paid the debt that we should have paid. And the Bible says when we come to him and recognize that we're broken and we need a Savior, and we ask Jesus to forgive us, and we ask him to save us, and we ask him to be Lord of our life, that all of a sudden you're a new creation. And this is so cool. Now you're not just made in the image of God. Now you're part of the family of God. He calls you an adopted son or daughter. If you have more questions about that, I would love to talk with you after the service. would love to pray with you. We're going to dig into sin next week, just so you know, next week that's the sermon topic is sin. What is it? Why do we all do it? What are the consequences of it? I hope you'll come back for that. But if you want to talk more today about how to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'd love to pray with you after the service. I'd love to have that conversation. For those of us who have already done that, I hope that today was a great reminder to you of how valuable you are in the eyes of Almighty God that you would leave here knowing that you have immeasurable worth and that that would impact the way that you love yourself, the way that you love others, and the way that you love God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you're a God who doesn't just talk about love, but you're a God who demonstrates it. And never did you demonstrate it more powerfully than at the cross. And so, God, I I just thank you for that. And God, I I just recognize how short I fall in in loving others the way you love me. And so I just pray that your spirit would continue to to sanctify me, that your spirit would continue to give me the power and, and the motivation to do what pleases you and to love those around me like you love. I also just want to lift up anyone here today, maybe God, that that just doesn't feel very valuable today. They just don't feel like they're worth much. Just pray that you'd remind them how valuable you thought they were when you sent your son to the cross for them. That you were willing to pay everything for them. 
Pray that that would give them encouragement, again, that your voice would be the loudest voice they hear this week. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.